Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I mean, th- there's the fact that we're like recording this podcast as the president makes an emergency declaration. Well, play it's like Maybe emergency, <laughs> emergency, woo, woo, woo. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Dara Lind and Sarah Cliff. Uh, Jane is in uh, New Zealand, I think, uh, enjoying herself. Meanwhile, the United States... Jane is in a national emergency. Yes, there is a national emergency, so she she may not even make it back (laughs) uh, (laughs) given this crisis. Um, But our resolution to you is to not spend the whole day dunking on the national emergency. Um, I do want to talk about it because I think there's some misconceptions about what this means. Um, but but talk instead about a substantive thing that happened, which is that an appropriations bill was signed, taking government shutdown off the table uh, throughout the remainder of the fiscal year. And it does not have the wall money, um, but there's like a lot of things that are in it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would put asterisks after not wall... The and money. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have the thing that caused right. the breakup, right? I mean, just, just, yeah, 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 just yeah, to yeah. be clear, right? It, like, it, it is, well, why don't you tell us what it does have? Right. Like, so I, th- I think we can say that it is insufficient enough for what Trump wanted, that he felt the need to declare a national emergency to get more money. Like, that is true. But the bill authorizes specifically $1.375 billion to build physical barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border. And it stipulates that none of that money can be used for anything that is not a design that is currently on the border. So it couldn't be used for, like, the prototype designs that the Trump administration had, you know, contracted out and had built in late 2017, early 2018. Democrats are pointing to this and going, see, we specifically prohibited him from using the money to build a wall. He has to build fencing instead. The reason that this is not like at this point in the ongoing semantic dispute over the wall, this is more misleading than it is clarifying, is that when they were asking for $5 billion and then $5.7 billion in December, they were saying, we're, we would use this for steel bollard fencing, which is exactly the same thing <laughs> that Democrats are now authorizing. And that's what they're now going to be using, you know, whatever money they get out of this emergency declaration to build. They are, they've said that they're freeing up a total of $8 billion between the uh, authorized money and the 
you know, taking executive action money. We'll see how much of that, you know, gets held up in court. But any money that they get through executive means, while in theory, it's not going to have the restrictions on it that the appropriations bill had because Congress said this money we're giving you has to be spent in particular ways. It didn't necessarily apply to whatever else they're freeing up. But in practice, those are going to look like the exact same barrier. But wait, I, I, I want to back you up, though, because I feel like the lefty activists have wound up spinning this as a less of a humiliating catastrophe for <laughs> Trump than it really is, right? Like... And like, like, go back to October of 2016, right? Donald Trump was running for president. And he was saying then that the existing border barriers were not sufficient, right? So him— What Im- Donald Trump was saying was that there were no border barriers. Look, <laughs> there were, Trump going down to the bollards is a concession on Trump's— behalf to reality, right? Democrats being willing to fund the bollards is a failure of left activists' hope to hyperpolarize the issue and push Democrats to a position they had not held pre-Trump. But like in particular with the numbers of money, right? Like if Donald Trump had wanted $1.3 billion worth of money to build existing border barrier prototypes, he could have just signed the fucking bill that passed in December. Like, the whole premise of the shutdown was that there was something inadequate about this proposal. Right. And, like, it is true that Trump, by lowering his horizons, has created a scenario in which it's not a defeat for Trump to accept it. But, like, if Trump wanted to accept this, he could have just accepted Like, the exact thing that, like, Laura Ingraham and other people were dunking on him for and that got him feeling sad and led to the shutdown, like, that's what he's taking here. Yes. So I I think that there are two different, that there's the quantitative and qualitative stuff here, right? Like quantitatively, yes. There's, Trump got rolled. Yes, he's freeing up more money now than he was asking for to begin with, but there's nothing that would have stopped him from doing exactly this on December 22nd, um, you know, saying, okay, you guys didn't give me what I wanted. I don't think this is sufficient. Arguably, he would have had a an easier legal time of it insofar as he wouldn't have, you know, a six-week-long paper trail of, well, we'll see what Congress comes up with, but if they don't give me what I want, it is, you know, certainly going to get used in court against him. Qualitatively, you know, the reason that I get so frustrated by the semantic debate over the wall is that there's never any, like, there's no consensus and there's no progress. Donald Trump ran for president having no idea what the border was like. Donald Trump in some ways still doesn't understand what the border was like. One of the things that Donald Trump successfully learned in his first few months in office was that there was a very narrow lane of barriers that that could be built that would actually satisfy operational needs. Other people in the conservative movement do not appear to care as much about that as they do about the visual of having a concrete wall, the message that that sends. That tension has never been resolved in a productive way. It has never even really been hashed out. And so you get Donald Trump simultaneously understanding that he can't do anything other than steal ballers and being susceptible to getting hit by the right for doing just that. Like I do. And, and, you know, I, I wrote this in my piece from today, which I guess I can I now have an excuse to put in show notes that like this fight has 
shown that build the wall as is just like that's never a fight that's going to get resolved. It's never a fight that anyone's going to be able to declare victory or defeat on because no two people are getting to any kind of agreement on what counts as wall and what counts as Trump's wall and what counts as building. But I mean, so on the theory that this thing that Trump is going to build is the wall. Because I, I think this is important, right? If you go back to the, um, you're going to have to bail me out here. Right, um, yeah. Two senators had an amendment. Corker Hoven. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. It seems to me that by the theory that Trump is building the wall now, that Corker Hoven would have built the wall. Well, explain that, what Corkerhoven so this, is. This was, this was, so Corkerhoven was an addition to the Gang of Eight immigration bill, right? And so this was a successful effort by moderate Democrats to get a bunch of Republicans on board with this. Um, yeah, I mean, it, by, was, it was a successful effort led by moderate Republicans to well, get a but, lot but of I mean, But I mean, Democrats, you d- have to decide in these things, like, are we going to treat this as a poison pill right. or are we going to take it, right? Yes. And they were like, yes, we are going to swallow this, like, big uh, border thing. It was like a lot of money. It was yeah. It was basically like throwing a lot of money at the border and giving a lot of leeway to DHS to and, figure and, out and, how to and, spend it. And the pitch was right. I mean, like the the conceptual pitch with this was that the physical security of the border is a really big deal, and like we need to say yes to Republicans who are obsessed with this, and in exchange, they are going to say yes to our don't call it an amnesty, yes. right? That like our concern as Democrats is like we don't want kids living in terror that their mom and dad are going to be kidnapped from their home by ICE agents. But what Republicans want is to not be living in terror that unauthorized immigrants are streaming across the border in a present flow, right? And like that was a big compromise. And like I have been very frustrated for many years that it didn't go through. And like the frustration level increases when you see like the most super immigration hawk people like redefining the problem in terms that like they rejected the solution to. So I think that there are – you have given the good faith policy read on the argument for Cor- Corker Indeed. <laughs> uh, I think that the other argument on on that bill, which was a close cousin to the argument that people who then got cold feet on comprehensive immigration reform used, was, wasn't was that border security is a problem and we need to fix it first, but rather Americans worried about the security of the border is a political issue and we need to assuage their fear before we can do anything, you know, on the dovish side on immigration. If you do that in a big compromise, comprehensive bill, you can design it as the 2013 bill was designed so that, okay, we're simultaneously throwing a bunch of money at the border and authorizing down the road a legalization program. We're setting both of these things in motion at the same time so that nobody can say, well, you haven't done enough yet, but we're saying that we're securing the border first. The you know, Rubio argument subsequently was we couldn't even we shouldn't have even set anything in motion. You have to get people to a place of confidence in the federal government to secure the border before you can even have a political conversation about anything else on policy. The problem with that is that. And I you know, this is something that Donald Trump has never really understood and might only now be beginning to understand. You can't control people's fear. You can activate it. 
but you can't tell them it's time to stop worrying now and guarantee that they're going to believe you. And so while Donald Trump took advantage of this massive information gap and his lack of caution that other Republican politicians had because he wasn't concerned about what was going to happen if he won the election and had to actually be responsible for securing the border. They're now at a position where they have to figure out at what point can you actually declare victory? At what point, you know, are you responsible? You know, is it a you break it, you bought it, or like you have inherited this broken thing and you're going to get blamed if you don't fix it? But so I mean, like, yeah. it's not. Yeah, it's it is shifting the debate. But although Democrats have also moved substantially to the left on border security since Corkerhoven, but like it's also a legitimate political problem that Trump is not getting out of anytime soon. But I mean, I think today is his best attempt to do that, yeah. right? Like by saying, "We signed the deal. I'm declaring the emergency." Like, it seems near certain this emergency money is going to be tied up in the courts for quite some time. And, you know, a lot of that will have to do with the way executive action works and, um, you know, some of the things. I I still, at some point in this episode, I want to talk about the role of Mitch McConnell here and um, his decision to suddenly be a big fan of executive action. But that felt, you know, watching Trump's speech before we came in here, among the myriad things he discussed there— It felt like his best attempt to say, like, you don't have to be scared anymore, that, like, the wall is getting built. You know, I am going to build the wall. That's man. If (laughs) I don't think that was the speech I saw. Yeah. I mean, like, if you're bringing, you know, relatives of people killed by unauthorized immigrants holding pictures of the murder victims and that's your way to say you don't have to be scared anymore, I have questions. No, I mean, I'm saying he's going to be the one who's going to fix it. Like, I see it as him trying to end the fear in the idea, like, I am the one building the wall. Like, I am the one who is, you know, making sure that these, you know, situations with angel moms, like, those are going to be a thing of the past. But I agree. It's like a tricky thing. To control. You're both highlighting it and also like casting yourself as the person who is going to make this, you know, no longer the reality. And, you know, when Trump tries to pivot to, you know, getting people to chant finish the wall instead of build the wall, like it doesn't work, right? Like he it is not nearly as easy to explain to people that you are constructing some replacement fencing and you have a plaque, you know, along a two mile section in El Central County. California saying that this is the first segment of President Trump's border wall. Like, it's not as easy to persuade people of that as it is to persuade them that there's nothing on the border whatsoever well, also, because now Democrats for, and judges want people coming into the U.S. and killing Now, them. for legal purposes, I guess they're not going to do more work around El Centro. Oh. And, and it's going to – well, we should get into that later. Yeah, um, we'll so, see, uh, so how about Mitch McConnell, right? So yes. once upon a time, Mitch McConnell said he didn't think – Trump should declare a national emergency yes. and repurpose billions of unauthorized dollars. I was actually a little confused why he took that stance at the time he did. Um, but he came around to the idea that rather than having a government shutdown that made Republicans unpopular, it would be better for Trump to do this. Yes, yeah, so I feel like Mitch McConnell has become an increasingly mystifying figure to me over the past few weeks. There was a nice, you know, long profile of him in The New York Times a few weeks ago that, you know, was supposed to be like, well, what does Mitch McConnell want? I came away from it like he wants to make some deals and hold his caucus together. I didn't come away with the great sense of like what he actually values. But, you know, one of the things that he has spent a lot of time on in his tenure as Senate majority leader 
is really pushing back on the Obama administration on executive action, saying, you know, you do not have the authority to do the things that you want to do without, you know, us, Congress, who control the purse strings, giving you that option. And you're just seeing such a reversal of that position. Like the Senate has been party to lawsuits um, suing the Obama administration over their use of executive power. Like this is a constant tension, you know, in the latter half of the Obama administration where you had President Obama in the White House, you had Congress um, controlled by Republicans and just, you know, no space to get anything done. Executive action becomes a key point of tension between the two. And, you know, I mean, I I don't know why he took that position at the beginning either. Like, it seems like it could have saved a lot of trouble just to. So maybe he does like really have like this like staunch belief uh, on executive action that he's deciding to forego now. But I, I don't know. Maybe he thought the shutdown was more winnable and they'd never get to this point. It is no, a definitely con- not that. It is a more no. confusing decision about why, you know, he's in the situation so like a month or so two after that. I, I think that it's worth thinking about, you know, the emergency declaration as one element of this ongoing funding fight that is now in a way being resolved with Trump signing, presumably, um, the funding bill that Congress has worked out. And like McConnell took a different approach to this fight than he has to previous things where, you know, Congress has to do something or Congress is trying to do something, but Trump's approval is necessary. Like in general, Mitch McConnell has said, I am going to let the White House tell me what they want and then I'm going to try to make that happen. you know, putting sometimes putting more effort in than other times. But like, you know, Mitch McConnell has been generally pretty reluctant to get out ahead of the White House or have his caucus get out ahead of the White House on policy, because if you can't predict what Donald Trump's going to go for and you take a vote, that's a pretty tough vote. And then the president comes out and says, this bill was terrible. What were these Republicans thinking? You've now made your caucus vulnerable to primary challenges. Like it's a, you know, it's a cautious mechanism that makes sense if your key goal is protecting your incumbents. That's not what happened this go around. When the government reopened in late January, like congressional the congressional conferees really took the lead. Richard Shelby, you know, was really forging ahead talking to Democrats getting a deal done. The White House wasn't really active in that process. So McConnell was simultaneously sticking his neck out on that and taking the risk that the president wasn't going to sign the deal. And sticking his neck out on the national emergency. And like, yeah, I I get I also have questions about why you would do that, given that, you know, he kind of was heading to a collision course with himself. He may have overstated the power that he had with the president. He may have been acting in the hope that the president was going to take a more active role in the negotiations. And then if he didn't get what he wanted from there, just suck it up. But yeah. McConnell made it clear he wanted neither a shutdown nor a national emergency. Trump said, pick one. And McConnell blinked. And I think it's it is kind of hilarious that, you know, a president who is supposed to be a negotiator, but who hasn't been able to negotiate his way out of a paper bag generally has now, you know, won a stare down with Mitch McConnell, who's supposed to be this great tactician. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing about the wall in this, right, is it is it occupies this sort of negative space where it's so central to Trump's politics. He's so invested in it. He won't sign bills that don't have it. There's a national emergency over it. But also, like, nobody is acting like this is something that they really um, want, right? Like, nobody – there's no, like, give and take over this that's in any way meaningful, right? I mean, if you think about the concept of repurposing military construction funds to go build a wall, right? And you imagine some different planet in which like 
Donald Trump hit upon a three, $3 billion military construction scheme that he wanted to get money for. And like Nancy Pelosi didn't think it was a good idea. Like it wouldn't be the end of the world, right? Like he would just have to give her $3 billion for some dumb construction project in San Francisco. And then like we all would go home, right? Like it's a, it's a like slightly baffling. I mean, it's it's not baffling. As Dara will tell you, it's because like this is actually about competing visions of what it means to be an American. But it's very <laughs> challenging to translate those kind of sentiments into a concrete legislative. Oh my gosh, it's impossible. Agreement, right? right? Yes. And so it's like the more you get into like the appropriators are sitting around a table, like the more completely nonsensical everything becomes because it's like you know, you have like Beto O'Rourke like sitting there in a city that like has a wall, but also a long tradition of integration with the Mexican city across the border. And he's like saying El Paso is great because we're a welcoming community. And that's true. <laughs> and like the exact nature of construction projects doesn't quite address that, right? It's like like Donald Trump is trying to say, and and it was good, you know, in the election, right? I mean, I think I've heard from a lot of um People work in Democratic Party politics in northern rural areas that kind of swung toward Trump. And they say that like people came to feel like like yes. rural white people in white communities came to feel that Democrats had like turned against their kinds of communities and like now only cared about communities like El Paso. Yes. No, it, right. And yeah. like that's the argument. And like you can't you not you can't cash that out. Right. Like it's a gestalt. On one level, you really can't turn that kind of expressive politics in the, into policy. On another level, you can. That's what results in people really wanting there to be a concrete wall. Right. It's just that it is so far divorced from any immediate policy reality that people who are closer to the ground are actively pushing back on it. Right. But, you know, it's it does, on the other hand, create some interesting space for you know, because the fight is happening at such an abstract and symbolic level, like actual details of immigration policy, the temperature goes down on them a little right. bit. And while there was a little bit of fighting over, you know, some other immigration stuff in this funding package, there's some small tinkering around the edges stuff that is really interesting that Democrats and Republicans were able to agree to um, that, you know, does in some ways limit like there's well, can we yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. Let's, take let's take a break and then and then we'll and then, and then we'll get those details. Yeah. OK. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Okay, so Jerry, Sorry. you you yeah. were telling us. I was telling They, they, they the tinkered this. There's a lot of like moving parts to immigration policy. Appropriations bill is a good vehicle for kind of futzing around with them. Um, yep. So what happened? Right. So, you know, in the same way that Democrats put limitations on the $1.375 billion for the barrier, um, you know, they put limitations on the money that they appropriated to, you know, ICE and Customs and Border Protection for various things. And, you know, for example, there's under current policy, when a kid who comes to the U.S. without a parent or guardian with them, you know, HHS's job is to find the closest relative living in the United States to sponsor them, to, you know, to host them while the kid's case is going through the courts. So under current policy, that process of finding the sponsor includes a fingerprint and background check that is then sent to ICE. And ICE, you know, has the capacity to, and in some cases has, arrested the sponsor because the sponsor is an unauthorized immigrant in the U.S., uh, which they wouldn't have been able to do if the sponsor hadn't been like, you know, hadn't stepped up to take care of like their nephew or whatever. The bill that Congress has passed prevents ICE from using any of the money that it's appropriated to go after sponsors, you know, just because they're sponsors of, you know, just because they're unauthorized immigrants. Like there are some, you know, obviously if there are serious felonies involved, but like it does put an end to this practice that had expanded over the last year. So it really is kind of tinkering around the edges kind of stuff. I think that there had been about 80 people who had been arrested, not all of them solely on immigration violations in the like first four months that the policy was in effect and it's been reduced from its original scope because originally it also applied to everybody in the household of the sponsor. But, you know, there are things like that where Democrats who are really interested in robust oversight of immigration enforcement have kind of identified these problems. And Republican appropriators, you know, the executive branch was not super thrilled with that provision, to say the least. Conservatives were not super thrilled with that provision. There was a lot of frustration among immigration restrictionists about this. They were saying it's essentially, you know, providing amnesty to de facto amnesty to tons of people. It's it's encouraging child trafficking. Um, but Republicans in Congress were not apparently terribly concerned that this was going to be the thing that was going to blow back on them because it's so divorced from the super high level politics of, you know, is there a wall? Do you feel safe? I mean, I think it's interesting to see how something like that ripples out. Because like you said, Dara, like we're, we're talking about maybe the universe of 80 or so people who have been arrested. But I think there's also like the climate it creates, right? Yes. Like someone oh, yeah. would not want to step forward to be a sponsor because they are worried about, you know, being one of those 
80 people. And yeah, and you, you know, can absolutely see like the number of kids still in HHS exactly. custody skyrocketed throughout right. the fall in part because people were getting held for longer. And I think that's an interesting question about like these smaller policy changes that are kind of totally overshadowed by the wall stuff is, you know, y- you could imagine them happening and not much changing simply because people don't know about it. You could have people who would step forward to be a sponsor, but like they've heard in the past this policy was bad. You know, no one's really talking about this policy change. You know, maybe they are not weeds listeners and you know they have not <laughs> heard about this part of the bill. So nothing changes. But I think that's an interesting question. When you have these kind of big rolled up bills like this one, there's one thing to change something on paper and there's quite another to make people aware of that change, yeah. to have their behaviors change as a result of it. And, you know, I think that's an interesting open question of, you know, what the we, we've talked a lot in the show, you know, about the climate for undocumented workers in the U.S., like how they're making decisions about pursuing public benefits, about stepping forward to be a sponsor. And I don't know, you know, how exactly this kind of information gets communicated to them or, you know, you know, in the one hand, we're making these policy changes. On the other hand, you know, you have. Trump having these conference, having these press conferences with angel moms and talking about this <laughs> wall, like it still doesn't seem like a great climate to step forward, you know, to ICE and identify yourself, even if, you know, there's been this tweak made in the law saying, you know, they're not going to use this new money to um, to deport you. Yes. I mean, like the question of how to rebuild trust in institutions or how to build trust in some institutions when other institutions are trying to deport you is, um, you know, if there are any book agents out there, like, I I would love to figure out how to talk about this. I do not, you know, Donald Trump doesn't create a lot of opportunities for it. Um, You know, generally, the sense tends to be that it's really hard to persuade people that the government isn't out to get them. Um, And that, you know, this administration in particular, we saw this, you know, during some of the when they first announced adding the citizenship question to the census, like the fact that there were pretty strong legal safeguards in place that people's information wasn't going to get sent to ICE from the Census Bureau. Like, yes, it's true, but it's also not something anyone is going to believe if you say it. I think this is more about congressional Democrats sending a message to ICE than about a message to unauthorized immigrants, right? I mean, this is the sort of ground level reality of like abolish ice as a hashtag is is a like you know you're out there you're doing stuff like federal employees all the time or they're doing things they're doing their jobs right and this is a like putting on notice that like envelope pushing tactics that get a lot of articles written about them and stuff like that, like our constituents are going to expect us to like come back to Washington and make you stop doing that. And we will, in fact, do that. And that like Richard Shelby and all these other Republicans, like they don't actually care about you and are not going to protect you. And Donald Trump is a moron. And, you know, and so like you guys should like watch your shit. I mean, right. I think, in a, yeah, in a way that they that. haven't necessarily been doing. It's now, I, I don't like, know how on the loud. margin there it is going to be easier to, you know, to find sponsors who are willing to step up. Like right. this definitely will have some impact, especially because if it's a choice between stepping up and still maybe risking deportation, but like you can be told in good confidence that it's not going to get sent to ICE or letting your nephew or cousin or what or like oftentimes your child who you have been separated from because you immigrated to the U.S. and they didn't. And now they're coming to to meet you, like leaving them in the custody of the government. Like you're still going to take that risk. Right. I mean, there's pretty strong incentives to actually yeah. like update your information about 
yeah. this actual situation. Um, the the other thing about this, you know, that is just worth flagging is like how much the dynamics change when you get out of the partisan legislating mode and into the bipartisan legislating mode. Like if you pay attention to American politics, you've probably heard that like Kamala Harris is like a leading 2020 contender and an important United States senator. And like she voted no on this. Uh, You've probably heard that Mark Meadows is an influential Republican leader of the Freedom Caucus. Like he voted no. Uh, You've probably heard of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She voted no, right? And so you might start to think it's like, wait, like everybody in the all-star game (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is voting against the bill, right? But like that's not how Congress works when it comes to bipartisan legislating, right? Like these deals are made by a bunch of senators who like you don't hear a lot about. Um, and Richard Shelby and Nita Lowy. Exactly, right? And they pass like overwhelmingly like with the votes and like every single person in a slightly vulnerable seat takes advantage of any kind of bipartisan deal to be like, yep, I'm in on the deal. Because then you get a voting score that shows you're a moderate, that you cross the aisle and, and work for stuff, right? And this these things like sail through, whereas it would be a huge deal, right? You could not pass a GOP healthcare bill that Mark Meadows did not vote for, right? He'd be like, we're blowing up the deal. The Freedom Caucus isn't on board, right? But in a bipartisan deal, it just becomes pure position taking, right? Like there's a million things in it. Any member of Congress is going to look at this and be like, there's things in it I like, there's things in it I don't like. And you just decide as like a Kierkegaardian like leap of faith. I either want to be an anti-establishment troublemaker who votes no, like AOC and Mark Meadows, or you're like, I'm a go-along, get-along team player who signs out to deals. And then you have the like, I'm running for president, and I'm like, taking a stand, right? And and everyone is free to take those stands because everyone knows the bill is going to pass. So like Chuck and Nancy aren't there screaming at you like you have to vote for the bill because like they don't care if right. you like, vote for the bill. This is very different than like 2009, like Nancy Pelosi yelling at her caucus like you have right. to support this right. because it literally will not pass. Right. It's, like, it's like a completely different mode of legislating. It's right. like, like everybody do what you want. Like it's fine. Yeah. Like it's I mean, you can reasonably assume that somebody pointed out that that the margin on the bill in the House was such that if every Republican had voted against it, it would have narrowly failed. Um, you know, right. Nancy Pelosi's office has probably knew that in advance. They had probably done that whip count. They probably figured they could lose X members. And they either correctly knew that there weren't that many people who were going to be voting against it, or they sent some messages like, okay, you can, you can't vote against this. And those were agreed to accordingly. Like, it's not just that it's members making these decisions, it's members making these decisions in a discussion with leadership about how important a marginal vote really is. Right, exactly. So like, it's, it's a free vote, right? And what's actually interesting is like what the negotiators uh, deemed important, yes. right? When they're when they're there making the sort of deal on a on a ground level, and the whole emergency declaration takes place in the context of like evidently Republican negotiators not thinking that the marginal addition of steel slats is a very important thing because they actually brought the headline number down from the previous compromise, right? right? Uh, because the whole thing was taking place in this like air of unreality where like. Trump was going to make this declaration. It's like nobody knows how much money 
will actually go through once everything is litigated. But it's like Republicans had certain things that they held the line on, more or less, like this detention beds Mm -hmm. thing um, and other stuff they were willing to give ground on. And the wall itself was one of the things they were willing to give ground on, whereas this detention beds thing, which like nobody has ever heard of, was (laughs) evidently something... Matt, you're trying to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean. But like, this was... uh, Republican members of Congress, right? Like congressional Democrats showed up and they were like, we're going to sneak this thing in that's going to limit the detention beds. And Republican members of Congress were like, no. Right. Like, so anyway, I can explain what it was. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I just think it's it's always an interesting test of like, what did Richard Shelby and his colleagues actually think was important? And like the wall, no, the detention beds, evidently. Until a couple of years ago, what Congress would do is it would mandate that the government have a certain number of detention beds available at any given time. They, they, you know, they could be filled or not, but they had to have a capacity of at least 34,000 beds at any given time. That uh, fl- the detention floor fell out. Um, Lucille Roy Allard, who's the now head of the Appropriations Subcommittee for Homeland Security, has you know had that in her sights for a while and got it out in 2016. And from there, it was you know more of a traditional appropriations like we're giving you this much money. That means you can have an average of this many beds. Like. Try, you know, try to stay within that budget. ICE totally did not stay within that budget. ICE, like, you know, detained a ton of ton more people and then either brought money from elsewhere in DHS or asked Congress for supplemental funding. So Democrats come into this negotiation saying not only do we want to fund fewer detention beds than we funded last time, but we want to put a statutory maximum of how many people can be in detention who were arrested by ICE within the U.S., like people who were already living here who, you know, are unauthorized immigrants, as opposed to people who are apprehended coming into the U.S. who are then, you know, being detained while their deportation cases or asylum cases are being processed. Uh, So they were saying, you know, you can have only 16.5 thousand people who are being detained at any given time who have been arrested by Can I say, is that like a policy idea that's been kicking around for a while or that just kind of came out of nowhere? I mean, like, I'm sure there have been a few Hill staffers who have had this as a what if we tried this idea for a while. Um, this but is not like from the white paper, like that's what I meant by nobody Washington. has heard of it. Right. Right? This was a little yeah. bit of like a last minute yeah. gambit. Right. And right? and furthermore, it's like it's a weird mix of statutory and appropriations yeah. authority, right? Like you can't say the standard way that you phrase this is none of these funds shall be spent to do right. XYZ. You can't say none of these funds shall be spent to detain the 16,501st person. So it was this weird, like adding a statutory thing to it. So the National Sheriff's Association comes out against it. The White House really pulls out some stops to say this is going to force us to release criminals because while there are some requirements for like if you have a certain criminal history, the government has to detain you, that doesn't apply to all criminal charges or convictions. And so a lot of the people who are currently in ICE detention have some kind of criminal charge or conviction in their pasts. The administration has made the assessment or has made the assertion that they are threats to public safety because of that criminal history. And so they're saying, you know, if you if you make us detain fewer people or detain fewer people that we've arrested in the interior, some of the people we're going to release are going to be quote unquote criminals. Um, so they, you know, made a big deal out of it and did get Democrats to back down and you know, the levels at which detention is funded mean they're actually going to have 
substantially more budget to work with than they did in the bill that passed last year. If you add to that the amount of you know transfer authority that they have, they can probably get up to detaining as many people as the president wants to. Like we're currently at 49,000. In theory, if they wanted to stay within budget, they would have to keep an average of 45,000. So like, you know, if you talk to Democrats, they'll say, well, by the end of the year, it'll be back to 40,500, which is where it was, you know, in 2018. And if you talk to Republicans, they say, well, the president can just transfer money to the this and we could get up to 52,000 or even 58,000 if we really wanted to. So I'm curious, Dara, with this deal passing, like what happens next in this space? Like you have Trump saying like he has his wall money. It probably gets tied up in court for a little while. You have the government like funded at least through the end of September. Like what is your best guess on, like, where the issues you're covering? Like, do they just kind of recede into the background, like where I live in healthcare and they're not, like, you know, at the top of mind? Or, like, where does this all go I mean, next? I don't know what happens with the border wall fight because the border, I mean, that's always been a question of what is Donald Trump satisfied with, and we don't have an answer to that. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what, you know, stuff like the HHS, you know, sponsor provision in this bill is a reflection of what happens when you have a party that's willing to do robust oversight, right? Like this is something that came up. We knew that we know that people were being arrested who were sponsors because of a question that got asked in an oversight hearing last year and some follow up uh, on that from uh, Tal Copan, who's really been doing great work on this from the San Francisco Chronicle. But like that kind of thing where, you know, Democrats really and this is both the progressive wing of the party that, you know, didn't want any increase to funding in funding and some of the not necessarily moderates, but like people in the mainstream of the Democratic Party who think that there is a humanitarian crisis, but are willing to spend a little more money to, you know, improve conditions if that's what's necessary. Like there are a lot of people who are interested in asking some tough questions of public officials and maybe those lead to learning more information about what's going on. And maybe that leads to, you know, the next budget bill ha- having a little more of this kind of policy stuff. Like, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that we have a gajillion and one hearings over family separation with everybody asking, how could you do this? How could you do this? And nothing new or nothing that's happening right now actually gets aired out. All right. Let's take a break and let's talk about the emergency. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I want to say, like, something that has been kicking around on social media ever since this happened was like, well, if Trump does this, like, the next Democratic president will declare that guns are a real national emergency and then we'll do, I don't know, like, good gun stuff. It's important to be clear, like, what Trump is doing here is kind of crazy, very likely illegal and all around bad, but it's not, like, just totally made up out of nowhere. Right. This is not the equivalent of, you know, the president just says, oh, it's a natural national emergency. I'm suspending the Constitution. And now whatever is going to happen. Right. Like 
laws that are passed by Congress, for good reason, typically afford some level of flexibility in what you actually do. And like one form of flexibility is that you can declare that there is an emergency and then you can repurpose certain kinds of funds to do certain kinds of other things. Uh, The classic Obama emergency was at one point he said there was a swine flu emergency. And he shifted some of the HHS money around to do something flu-related rather than something not related to the flu. And Congress can, right, if you genuinely had like a rogue dictator president, Congress can just pass a resolution saying, no, it isn't an emergency, right? right? And then it goes away. So again, as with literally everything Trump has done, right – However troubling or authoritarian you find it, the only reason there's any problem at all is that the Republican Party is squarely backing him, right? There's nothing here at all that, like, the president can just go do. It's like the president, with the backing of the Senate Republican majority, can invoke specific statutory authorities that he says will let him reprogram two big specific sources of money. One is there's federal drug interdiction money, and he's going to say, we need this wall to stop the drugs from coming in. And the other is there's a military construction fund, and he's going to say that this qualifies as a national defense emergency. Um, And it's then going to subsequently be litigated. Um, And what what the White House sort of put out this morning is that, I don't know if they believe this or not, uh, but they were trying to say, I think to reassure Trump, that they have a strategy to win this in the courts. And that strategy has like three parts, right? And it's don't build the wall in California and New Mexico uh, because the state government said we'll sue you. Just build the emergency wall in Texas. And then in Texas, get the Texas state government to pass a law that would bar Democratic-controlled city and county governments right. from suing. It's very Rube Goldberg, like lawmaking, right actually, here. It's a brilliant distillation of how much, like, and Texas is a really good example of this. Like, a lot of state governance has been how do we stop progressive localities from doing things? You know, like this is the function of state governments being largely controlled by Republicans and city governments being largely controlled by Democrats. There's a lot of like purely defensive policymaking. Right. Now, I think it's fair to say that actually a couple years ago in Texas, this would not have flown in the Texas state legislature uh, because actually moderate Republican faction in the Texas House of Representatives was sort of governing in a coalition with Democrats and were keeping off the agenda certain kinds of like far right red meat type bills uh but that arrangement has all fallen apart and so i like this was white house senior administration officials were asserting that the texas state legislature would do this rather than actual texas legislators uh so like it it may well not happen uh but i wouldn't put it past them either um as darren was saying it's become pretty common like Tennessee passed like a law that like you can't have a mass transit project in Nashville or something like that. Um, there's a lot of state preemption of city minimum wage laws. Soda taxes. Soda another taxes. one that we have a lot of these on. Yeah. yeah this so is how we had the like, you know, 
for whatever reason, this has immediately gotten forgotten, gotten forgotten or misremembered as Democrats pushing uh, gender neutral bathrooms. But like the reason gender neutral bathrooms became a national issue or, you know, an issue of national focus was because the state government of North Carolina passed a law that superseded a local ordinance <laughs> that would, you know, right. that supported them. But now, I mean, I think if we zoom out a little bit, it kind of tells us something about like the current methods of like policymaking and like and how laws get made. And a lot of the fights that we're going to see play out like over things happening in Congress really aren't playing out in Congress anymore. Like this fight over the wall might actually play out in like Texas and Texas legislature that it might play out in the Supreme Court that I think one of the things you're seeing in an era of divided government where you don't really see these big bipartisan deals anymore is that you see a lot more litigation and a lot more laws being figured out in places that don't involve legislators. As And, you know, I think the Obama administration, they made pretty liberal use of their executive power at the end of their time in office with, you know, the view that they were not able to get anything done with the Republican Congress. And the Republican Congress pushed back really aggressively on that. But I think this only becomes a more frequent part of American policymaking, not, you know, something that is just a one-off, but something that's symptomatic about how things are working right now here There's in also a, a little bit of a difference is that, you know, the Obama administration was dealing with a conservative-dominated judiciary. So they were yeah. they were trying to thread the needle between doing what they wanted to do and doing stuff that wouldn't get tossed out of court. Um, Trump is also dealing with a conservative-dominated judiciary. So he has a greater scope of latitude, but it's also not 100% clear that this specific action like, is in fact calculated to stand up in court. It seems like there's a bit of a like triple game where like on the one hand, people are trying to convince Trump that this will hold up in court. So there was like this this Texas gimmick is interesting, but like I, I I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Like don't don't like scold me too much if this turns out to be wrong. But like I feel that some federal court somewhere will be found that agrees that like the House of Representatives has standing to sue over this. That some Texas landowner Trump who's getting eminent said domain when he announced it that he that the Ninth Circuit was going to rule against it. Like. Right. So that I mean that's exactly right. Right. Like it, it just like if the Ninth Circuit rules that. Nancy Pelosi has standing to sue, puts a temporary restraining order, then the Supreme Court has to address it. Like this idea that you could prevent the courts from ruling on this seems not true to me. Then then it becomes a question for John Roberts, where I feel like half of the Republicans are saying, no, this is fine. It'll stand up in court. And half of the Republicans are saying, no, this is fine. It won't stand up in yep. court. And like it's it's just not totally clear who wants to win. Also, which part of it might stand up in court, right? Like I think you can envision a scenario in which they say like, look, um, yes, like this is a valid drug interdiction scheme. Like mm-hmm. it is true factually that a non-zero quantity of drugs is smuggled across uh, unwalled sections of the border, right? And like there is a policy disagreement over whether building a larger fence is a good way right. to interdict drugs, but it is a way to interdict drugs. But then saying this military construction thing that like, no, this is not a military project. Like the military doesn't staff the border. Like that's nothing about this is a military project except insofar as Trump is trying to find a slush fund to do it. Right. Like, so I don't know, like a, a lot of different things could happen. And yeah. I've seen a lot of people asserting things very confidently, and I don't really know why. It's important to remember when we're talking about any court battle that 
judges tend to want to rule on the narrowest grounds possible and that judges really don't want to get into like political or empirical questions. Like the Supreme Court is not going to be issuing a ruling saying this is an emergency or this is not an emergency. <laughs> They're going to be sticking pretty closely to is the authority being evoked here legitimate for the purposes it's being used for. And maybe that's going to require peeking behind what's called the four corners of the declaration to like see if the emergency is real. But probably like if they can avoid that, they probably will. I think the other thing to bear in mind here is that it's not just a question of what the end point is going to be, but when. If we're talking about, you know, a very quick order being issued against the administration, like a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction, and the administration tries to, like, get that stayed, tries, you know, tries to escalate it up the chain really quickly, John Roberts isn't just, just going to have to decide whether he's going to side with the administration on this. John Roberts and, you know, whoever else in the conservative majority is a little bit squeaky about expanding executive power, they're going to have to decide whether it is important enough to them to issue a stay of a lower court's order, which is a pretty high threshold, in order to get Trump to start building the wall while the case works through the courts. Like, it's a, you know, is this a weeks-long, a months-long, a years-long legal battle? We don't know that yet. Just because it's going to get held up in court doesn't mean that it's not going to be able to go forward in some way during that court battle. Right. I mean, I, I think it seems clear that some wall projects are going to happen. Although what's weird is that like that would have been true anyway. Right? Like if this whole wall fight had never happened, it would nonetheless have been the case that like there would be things happening at the border with stuff being built that Donald Trump could easily have characterized as the building of the wall. And conversely, like there's no way like some whole giant project is going to be completed yeah. within the scope of Donald Trump's term. I mean, again, not as a congressional matter or a legal politics battle, uh, but just like, you know, what it what it is. Um, I think it's important, you know, what Sarah said, right? Like the Obama administration turned to a lot of executive uh, discretionary actions in its second term. And it would be probably useful for 2020 presidential candidates to talk more about this uh, because this has become an important part of like the way we president now. Yes. Um, and is something that reasonable people disagree on and that presidents have a tendency to um, – Often their co-partisans in Congress are not enthusiastic about the idea of aggressive use of executive authority, but when the president really wants to do it, can sort of wind up bullying them into saying yes. And so, like, it actually really, really matters, right? Like, you could say, I'm going to install postal banking supporters on the USPS Board of Governors, and they are going to assert that such and such statute gives them the authority to start a public banking option. And like that may or may not hold up in court, but it, th this is something people pitch to me. It's not, um, it's not laughable that you could do that. Like if, if you strongly believe in it, like you give it a shot, right? Like maybe you win, maybe you lose. And a commitment to doing that would tell you a lot more about policy outcomes than whether or not somebody has co-sponsored some kind of hypothetical postal banking bill that like is never going to happen. And this like, it's obvious to people in the big spaces where there were Obama era controversies, like uh, climate regulation and immigration enforcement. But like, 
those aren't special. Those just happen to have been areas of focus in those particular years. Like the U.S. code is full of provisions that have some ambiguity to them. And the president of the United States and his legal team can try to come up with stuff to do. Matt, I believe you're saying that there's a very good article on Vox.com that people should read about this. Oh, but I didn't even someday. I mean, I, I wrote a little about this, but like I'm, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm working on reporting out a progressive laundry list um, of these kinds of things. Uh, but it's just something like I haven't heard authorities like allude to. Like there's been a certain amount of like climate change is a true national emergency. And I'm like, yes, I agree with you. And then like huddle with your lawyers and like in a specific sense, what is the national right. climate like, this emergency is going to look the like? the thing like when we do reporting on policy, it's like, how does the policy work? How much will it cost? Like how does it like where, you know, with the baby buns, like how does the money get out? Yes. The questions I think reporters and policy folks are less used to asking is like, well, how do you get it enacted? Because that's almost considered like a little off topic. Like, well, we'll get an office and then we'll figure out our agenda and then we'll like bring it to Congress and like, you know, very schoolhouse rock-esque. But I think you're right, Matt. It becomes like an increasingly important part of the agenda if you're going to assume, you know, you're going to have to do this in a non-schoolhouse rock way. Then you kind of have to think about like, well, what are those alternative channels and what are those other ways you can – do it. But I think it's just a discussion, you know, people are not currently used to having. Right. You know, it's not on my as a policy reporter, it's like not on my regular list of questions. And I think it's a question that like often gets batted down as like too soon in a way. Like, oh well, you know, first we actually have to like flesh out the policy. First we have to write the bill. But yeah, I think you're right. Like it's an increasingly important consideration to how effective can you be you know, in your governing is like, well, what are you going to do if this is something that, you know, is not going to move their Congress? And, and it's, it's just it's fascinating because, like, I, as somebody on a beat that, you know, where actual policy has been made by the executive branch, you know, very aggressively for the last three administrations, but the debate at, you know, in campaigns is always still mm. legislative. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, simultaneously, there's no discussion of how do we get this passed, and there's very little interest in doing administrative first, like thinking about administrative policy first, right? And that means that there's always this, you know, ongoing fight among, you know, especially the Democratic coalition and what is the highest legislative priority, right? Like assume you can do one or two big bills a session. What are those bills going to be? Who's going to get left out in the cold? And while to a certain extent you do have to do triage on like administrative policymaking as well, because, you know, you can only, there are only so many you know, OMB lawyers and OLC folks who can review things, there's less of one. It's You, know, you can't do, you, you can do more than one or two big regulations of Congress. And so, you know, I would love to see, I mean, I, I'd love to see more people thinking about, you know, avenues in a more explicit way. I'd also love to see more, you know, candidates, and this is a total pipe dream, acknowledging like, here is a thing I'd really like to do, but I don't think the president has the power to do that. Like, I think it's very tempting to kind of, go down this road of, great, now we have these new powers that have been unlocked for us. And I want to know, I mean, you know, Obama didn't act on immigration for a while because he personally was convinced that he didn't have the legal authority to do it. Like, it would be good to know what Elizabeth Warren looks at and goes, gee, I don't think the legal support is there. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say that, like, there's something in some ways like less novel about this than I think people sometimes 
believe, right? That like if you look at FDR and the Great Depression, uh, there was a lot of legislation there. But like the single most important thing he did to promote economic recovery was to take the United States off the gold standard um, and to um, basically change how the monetary system worked, right? And the way he did that, right? Like monetary economics have been a subject of perennial controversy in American politics. And he hit upon the idea of seizing on a World War I law which allowed the president to um, basically like control the import and export of goods as a wartime measure. And Congress just happened to have not repealed this law. And so he used it to issue an executive order barring the import and export of gold, right? And in effect, like demetalizing US currency, right? And like, it was a huge abuse of authority. You could write like all kinds of fussy takes about how like that was obviously not the purpose of the Trading with the Enemy Act. Uh, but he like saved like many millions of people from endless uh, suffering and like arguably saved American democracy for the long term, right? And like the Emancipation Proclamation was an aggressive use of executive authority by a Lincoln administration that didn't have congressional support for its anti-slavery initiatives. And like, well, you know, like that was pretty good, right? And we don't, when we like look back on the long sweep of things, actually treat these ideas as like as dubiously as I think it's become conventional for journalists too. Like what's really dubious about aggressive use of executive authority by the Trump administration is that I cannot think of a single example of the Trump administration doing something that is a good idea that will make people's <laughs> lives better, right? But like it would be much better to aggressively use executive authority to solve big national problems than to just like not solve them because you want Washington Post editorial page to like agree that you are doing things the right way, you know, like it's like putting wins on the board, I think, um, is is a good idea. But that means like thinking creatively about your actual legal powers, right? The U.S. Constitution puts a very unusual number of veto points in your way. There was no big discussion in Canada about like, can Trudeau get his policy initiative approved by parliament? It was like, nope, he won the election. It all got approved. And then they just like kick around for the next couple of years taking cute photos and having scandals. Uh, and America's <laughs> not like that. And so it's like you gotta you gotta come up with some 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 way to get stuff done. And I I think like playing like fantasy senator like we've done a lot in this campaign is is not so enlightening. Happy President's Day. Happy yeah, President's Day. Happy everybody. President's Day. Yeah. With that very Jacksonian model of the presidency. Or one might even say Trumpian. I prefer to think of it as the Lincoln Roosevelt model, as but I said. You can tell us what you think, <laughs> what model you think it is in the Weeds Facebook group. Yeah. Who's your favorite president who did a lot of deferring to Congress? <laughs> <laughs> Some great ones. Um, let's hear it for Garfield. Um, it's going to be amazing. No, uh, so th thanks to, to all of you for, for listening. Um, thanks to our sponsors, of course. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.